What a privilege it is to gather in his name and read from his word. From his word we find life and, and uh, just the blessed hope that is to come. This time I was reminded a little bit of uh, when I was a young lad, probably about nine, ten years old, and my grandfather, he, would, he was staying at our house and he would uh, get up in the morning and uh, before we would, and we'd come up uh, down from upstairs getting ready to do chores and that kind of thing. And he would uh, have the Bible sitting on the table. And uh, he would always select one of his grandsons, because there were just three grandsons in our family. <laughs> Otherwise, he probably would have picked the granddaughter too at, at that time. But pick a grandson to greet, read a portion of Scripture. And one of the ones that we would pick would be either out of Psalms or Proverbs. And it, it struck me as, we would, as I would read those at the time how much of a tie-in there is between the wisdom in the Old Testament, what's called wisdom, and righteous living in the New Testament. So I'm going to try and draw that parallel this morning by reading from Proverbs 20 and then in Titus. So Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Verse 3, it is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. A sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. The purpose of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find the righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. Who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Differing weights and differing measures, the Lord detests them both. Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. So we see then that it is wise not to be overtaken by beer and wine and letting it lead you astray. It's wise not to quarrel. It's wise to plow and work in season or you're going to be hungry in the fall and through the winter, maybe not even see spring. And it's wise to be a, a faithful man I know that in life's many happenings, if you can find a faithful friend, uh, it's a very good thing. A righteous man leading a blameless life, it's wise to, to strive for that, to be always working towards that. And who can say your heart is pure and that you're, that you're clean and without sin? If you have a clear conscience when you go to bed at night, uh, you sleep a lot better. Differing weights and differing measures, the Lord hates them. So in dealing with people, if you treat some better than others, maybe uh, help somebody out more and are not fair, the Lord hates that. So tying that in with righteous living in the New Testament... I'm going to turn to Titus, chapter 3, 
uh, and read part of that. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And how do we know what's good? How did Paul know what was good from the Old Testament? Well, we, we see what was wise to do from, from the Proverbs. Verse 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, and hating one another. That describes our world today quite well, I think. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us as generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning as we prepare for the message to 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, I uh, came to church on Thursday night. It wasn't feeling very well. And obviously my brain wasn't working very well either. And I walked out of here without my Bible. But not positive that I'd left my Bible here. You know how your mind plays tricks on you, and I was panicking last night as I was preparing for the message, because, you know, Julie was letting me use her Bible, but I don't know about you, but I, I got to have my own Bible. If I ever lose my Bible, I'm going to be in serious trouble. I was pretty grateful this morning that it was sitting on the soundboard back there. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning. Lord, we've gathered in your name, and we've worshipped you in song, Lord. And now I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word, that you would give me the words to speak, and they would be your words and not mine, Lord. And that you would prepare our hearts to understand the things that you have for us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of a series of sermons that I, I have entitled The Foundational Principles of the Church. I brought us back to this series of messages because I want to remind us of why we gather together, 
how we're supposed to function as we've gathered together. In the first two weeks of this series of messages, we spent the first week looking at Jesus Christ as the head of the church. We must never forget that, that that is the overriding and first principle of why we gather. When we decided and came together as a body of believers in 2002 to start this church, we must have come together determined that we were gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. If we were gathering in the name of men or around a great preacher or some, for some other reason because we just were all friends and wanted to be together, we would be wasting our time. But we have gathered for the high calling of gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. And we must remember that he is the head of the church and he must direct our paths. He must, we must submit to his will. The church is called to submit to the will of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the topic of the foundational principle of being grounded in the word of God. We call ourselves Bereans. We chose that name for our church because the Bereans were of more noble character and that they searched the scriptures daily to determine what Paul said was true. And we need to be those kind of people that search the scriptures, that we, yes, we hear preaching, but we must know the scriptures, we must understand the scriptures, and we must apply the scriptures. And I concluded that message by saying that we must be directed by the word of God, and we must also be restrained by the word of God. There are so many temptations. I see so many churches do hold to the word of God, and yet they add to the word of God. They add practices and traditions and things to the word of God and to how they function and they get off the path of which they should be on. This morning I want to look at the topic of church government and how that should be structured according to what I think the Bible teaches. And I hope that I do a good job of sharing that with you this morning. Next week we'll go into the topic of how the body of Christ is to function and the importance of that. So this morning I want to give you an introduction to biblical eldership. And if you might think that perhaps you can sit back and say, well, maybe this doesn't apply to me because I'm not an elder or a leader in the church, I must tell you that if you're a parent, which majority of you older than uh, 20 are, I almost started singing when Bill said oh, 35 and under because, shoot, I turned 36 only 10 years ago. And I, <laughs> and, but if you're a parent, I want to say to you that these principles apply to you in the home, that you are fathers, particularly are the elder, in your home. Your church is a, your home is a microcosm of what should be happening in the church. And these principles apply. And they apply the principles of biblical eldership apply both to the elders and the leadership, but they also apply to the church body. And so I hope that you find this to be encouraging. The topic or the concept of church elders or elders and themselves actually goes back to the Old Testament. <laughs> I like so much this morning how Steve <coughs> excuse me, linked the Old Testament, to the New Testament. Because, of course, Paul, when he was teaching, he understood his understanding of God from the Old Testament. And we first see elders in the Old Testament, which were really leaders, both within the family and within the community. In fact, we're told that Moses, he gathered the elders of Israel together. When they came to determine that God had called them to leave the land of Egypt, he gathered the leaders, which were called the elders, they were the leaders of the various families and clans, and he gathered them together and proclaimed the message that God had given them, him to the elders, and they supported him and followed him. We see in the New Testament the word elder is often interchangeable. I want to give you some of the interchangeable words that you may find in your version of the Bible. You may see the word elder. You may see the word overseers, pastors, shepherds, bishops, or teachers. Oftentimes, these are used interchangeably. 
Um, not always directly, but there's very much similarity between those different. So I want to say that again, elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds, bishops, and teachers. And two, Paul reminds us that being an elder is not just a matter of age. Of course, elder meaning older, but he's speaking of more wisdom and maturity more than just age. And we know that because he reminds Timothy, don't let them hold your young age against you as a young man. He is of course, been taught by Paul. He's a pastor that is written about and, and written to in the New Testament, and he was still an elder even though he was a younger man, and he was told to not cower back just because he was a younger man, but to assert the authority that God had given him as a leader in the church. Also, as an introduction, I want to say that the elder is not the head of the body. That's why the first sermon was that Jesus Christ is the head of the body. That's a mistake that's often practiced in churches today. But the elder is simply a part of the body, but has a responsibility over and for the body, and we'll get into what those responsibilities are. So don't ever think, and the elders or pastors and churches should never think of themselves as the head of the church. One of the things that's being taught in seminaries today is that pastors, you have to be the CEO. You're the chief executive officer. And I want to tell you of the church, Jesus Christ is the CEO. The pastor or elder or the leaders are not the head, and that's one of the reasons why so many churches are weak today is because the pastors act as if they are the head of the church, and that's a tragedy. I never, ever want to step in place of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not share his glory or his honor, and we should never attempt to usurp his position. That doesn't mean there isn't responsibilities, and we'll get into that. <clears throat> we first see in the New Testament that elders are chosen by appointment. I want to turn to Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And of course, again, like so many of these messages, we have to jump around because much of this isn't just specific teaching, but we see this by example in Scripture, how Paul and the other apostles taught the new churches how to function. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, as Paul is establishing the church here, it says in verse 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and prayed with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So we see here as Paul and Barnabas went around planting churches, that as they planted those churches, they would appoint elders to oversee those churches and they would do this with prayer and fasting, committing them unto the Lord, whom it says that these men had put their trust in. I think oftentimes we put people into church leadership positions today without prayer, and most certainly without fasting. But it shows you the seriousness of which Paul and Barnabas took this. Also, if you see over in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we're going to do our best to get through this message today, and hopefully my voice will hold up. Paul tells Titus, who was one of the young pastors that he wrote to, he says, I reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Of course, in every town that Paul went to, they tried to establish a church. And each of these towns, he had left Titus in charge <coughs> of appointing and choosing elders. And lastly, if you flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 
Paul writes this in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. And I wanted to point that verse out because he says, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, I want to say that, that the ones who are chosen or appointed for church leadership, particularly eldership, they must desire it. So often I've seen many examples where church leaders are essentially cajoled into serving in positions, and oftentimes, well, we have this vacancy. It's got to be filled, and we've decided you're the one. But we see here that Paul says that the one who is chosen for church leadership appointed would be one who would desire that position, that they would desire, that they would have a desire in their heart to serve. I would much rather see a position in the church go unfulfilled, unfilled if the Holy Spirit is not directed, encouraged, and uh, um, put the desire in someone's heart to serve in that position. So many times men just decide, well, we have these slots that must be filled. And we go outside of the Holy Spirit's direction, and we end up with people serving in positions they really don't want to be in, probably aren't qualified for, and all that does is weaken the church. And so we would be much better waiting for the Holy Spirit to encourage and to direct somebody to want to serve. So I wouldn't say this is true in our church, too, that if you would desire to serve in a leadership manner, that you should make that be known to the, the elders and to deacons and so that you can enter into those discussions. Those are not closed positions. I don't believe there's some magic number. Oh, our church has to have three deacons or our church has to have four elders. Those are man-made. We don't see anywhere in Scripture where it's determined, well, there should be a set number based on many churches will have a constitution and say for every 25 people there will be a, a deacon. There's, those are simply just man-made qualifications and unfortunately often lead to traps. What are the qualifications of an elder? We see two main passages that Paul writes both to Timothy and to Titus. Here we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so we'll look at these qualifications, and then we'll flip over to Titus, and this is really a parallel passage. Many of the qualifications are the same. And I'm just going to work, we'll just work through this passage, starting in verse 2 <coughs> of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, Now the overseer, which also could be elder, must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not giving too much wine, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also be of good reputation, with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. <coughs> Excuse me for a moment. Well, I must first tell you this. This is a convicting message for myself to prepare, because and I in no way would like to say to you that somehow that I have managed to accomplish all of this it's very challenging. Uh, I think that's true for any of us as we open up the Word of God and we compare our life and who we are and who we know we are, if we're honest with ourselves, 
and we compare it to God's word and we can say to ourselves, I think in complete honesty, boy, do I fall short. But this is the desire that God lays out in his word that he would like to see the leaders, the overseers within his church look like, that they would be above reproach, that he would be a man of one wife. Well, of course, in the Old Testament time or New Testament time that Paul was writing this, polygamy was still practiced. Many men kept concubines also in addition to that. But Paul is saying that, that, like the teaching of Jesus Christ, it was in the beginning there was one man and there was one woman. And there should be that of the leaders in the church. And so (coughs) I think some have misused that passage and said that a man must be married. I don't think that's absolutely the case. Many, many people have served not being married. But I also think (coughs) that it probably precludes those that have been divorced. I think that that is a difficult one. Many people have been divorced and would desire to serve, but I do think perhaps there are things, there are consequences to the scars in our lives. And I think perhaps that is one of them, that people that are divorced, men that are divorced, should not serve in a leadership role in the church so as not to bring reproach to the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says if you divorce and remarry, that's committing adultery. And we must be careful not to bring reproach to Christ's name. But in addition to that, this man must be self-controlled, be respectable, (coughs) hospitable, able to teach, which we'll talk about more in a minute. (coughs) Well, boy, I'm struggling this morning, people, I'm sorry. Not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome nor a lover of money. An elder leader in the church must not be greedy in any way. Interesting enough, Paul writes that an elder must manage his own family well. This is one that we often see lacking within leadership in the church, and it's as if the church feels like they cannot, well, that's a private matter, that's a personal matter, but Paul makes a very good case here that if a man cannot manage his own family well, how can he manage the family of God? How can he manage the church? And I must tell you that I've sat down and talked to my kids about this. This is important for them to understand If they would like me to be in a church responsibility, they have a role to play. How they behave and how they respond to my leadership of them as my children qualifies or doesn't qualify me to be a leader within the church. And I think that that many churches have suffered because the pastor's own children are bringing reproach to the name of Christ and the church looks the other way because they believe it's a private matter that they can't discuss. But actually, God's word is very clear about it. We just, unfortunately, are unwilling to apply the standards that God has laid out. In addition to that, he tells us that an elder should not be a recent convert because he'll become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil, which, of course, the devil's sin was pride. And so a recent convert, that is often a mistake, and I've seen that myself, where oftentimes a person becomes saved, they're excited about serving the Lord, and the church is excited about them being saved and wants to get them involved right away, and oftentimes moves them too quickly into a position that they're not yet ready for. And so we must be careful about that. Lastly, an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. So your relationship with the world, you must strive to be at peace with everyone if possible and have a good reputation. So such as myself, I'm a businessman. I want to have a good reputation in the community. I want to be fair. 
The passages that Steve read this morning were actually applicable. Do I use different weights and measures for the people I'm doing business with, or do I treat people fairly and honestly so that I have a good reputation, so that I will not tarnish my um, representation of the church? Let's turn over to Titus chapter 1. Starting with verse 6, Paul again gives another list, very similar. He says, an elder must be blameless. The husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe. That's an interesting thing, that Paul actually says that the children of the leaders in the church should actually be following Christ, that they should be believers themselves, and that should be important to the elder not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, which we're going to talk about not being overbearing in a minute here, not quick-tempered, <coughs> not given to much wine, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. <coughs> he who loves what is good is in self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So a very similar list. I want to talk about some of those in more detail in a moment, but one of those is that the elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, the gospel, <coughs> as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So first of all, he must know the, the gospel, must know the Bible, must know the word of God, one, so we can encourage the body. Number two, so that the elder can refute false teaching. I want to just say that in comparing God's word, which is pretty specific when you really look at it, and look at what current practices are within churches today as a common practice of selecting and choosing church leadership, oftentimes pastors, I've seen by experience that majority of the time church leaders are particularly pastors are chosen not not comparing God's word to what th their life looks like, but actually <coughs> looking at what degree do they have, where did they go to school, what's their speaking ability. That's a very high one. Oftentimes, I think the sad thing is, is that churches oftentimes call somebody in to be a candidate for a minister within their church, and to be frank, this person is a complete stranger to them. He's unknown to him. So how could they possibly compare his life to God's word? Because they don't know what his life is. Because typically speaking, the one they're calling is not from the community, and he's certainly not from their body. And so they have no ability to measure his life. And so they're reliant on something as a piece of paper that says, well, this person has a master's in divinity from a school. And whether or not we like that school or don't like that school. And that becomes the sole measures to whether or not that person is qualified to serve within the church as a leader. Often it's sad to me that we call in people to be leaders within a church and we know almost nothing about them. And that was not what we see. I think within what we see in scripture is, is that leaders were actually chosen from the community, chosen from the body, because then the body knew who these people were and their life <coughs> stood up to the test. Well, we're halfway there. Are we going to make it? I'm willing to fight on if you guys are willing to put up with it. 
Is any of it making sense? That's the question. Okay. This will not be our best recorded message. <laughs> Maybe in spirit, but not in voice. So, well, Paul said, when I am weak, he is strong. So I guess we'll go on that principle today, huh? The authority that we see within the word of God for church leadership, particularly church eldership, we, I want to bring you to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. I was doing pretty good till I had to get up and speak. <coughs> Hebrews 13, verse 17. Paul says this. Well, I don't know if it was Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, let's say that. Obey, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So first of all, I want to say this. That scripturally speaking, church leaders do have authority. They have authority within the church, and it's God-given authority. It's positional authority. It's similar to being a father. Children are told to submit to their father. It doesn't say submit to your father because he deserves it. You submit to your father because he's your father. This is similar. The authority comes from Christ. <coughs> it says here, why should you submit to him? Well, because they keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so that their work will be joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, I've, exper I've personally experienced both, of course. Most people, by and, by and large, are a joy to serve. Once in a while, some people are a burden, and I think that is, goes with the territory. But Scripture is an amazingly balanced, there's amazing balance within Scripture. Because here, in Hebrews 13, we see that the leadership has authority, and the body is told to submit to that authority and to respect that authority. But if we flip to 1 Peter chapter 5, which we looked at earlier, now we see instructions specifically to the leaders. <coughs> And Peter tells the leaders, the elders, he says to them to, um, in verse 3, I believe it is, that we are to, um, yes, he says that be shepherds of God's flock or under your care. Jumping down to verse 3, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you. And you notice that when Paul's descriptions in Timothy, 1 Timothy and in Titus, they're told not to be overbearing. Many church leaders, unfortunately, do lord it over those that they are serving. The elder is not a dictator, or elders or deacons. They are not dictators, but God brings these things into perfect balance. The body is to submit to the authority of the position of the elder, and at the same time the elders are told, don't lord it over, don't be overbearing. I would say don't be over-demanding of the people. But God brings this balance. Also remember that in light of this passage, the elder, or shepherd, as Peter refers here, does not work for the sheep, the sheep being the body. Guess who the elder or the shepherd works for? He works for the chief shepherd, as Peter describes Jesus Christ here as the chief shepherd in verse 4. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. So, first of all, Many times in churches, there's a 
dispositional error in how the church is structured is it's structured in a manner in which the pastor works for the people. He's actually their employee. And I've been in churches, I've served on a number of church boards before we started this church, and I heard more than one time in deacon meetings and, and elders meetings, he works for us. He should be doing what we tell him to do because he's our employee. I mean, we write his paycheck, don't we? That's not scriptural at all. That's not scriptural at all. Who's he working for? He should be working for Jesus Christ. I have always thought it's amazing. We're going to talk about finances in a few weeks. But it's always amazing to me, just a little side note, that when someone throws their money in the offering plate, they still think they have ownership to it. No, I think once you've put it in the offering plate, you've given it to Christ. So if it's been given to Christ, who's he being paid by? He's being paid by the Lord. And somehow, though, that's upside down. The shepherd or pastor does not work for the sheep. He is not to be a dictator, but he does not work for them. He's not to be their, he's not to be their hireling. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. Turn back to 1 Timothy 5. Lastly, regarding authority of the elders within the church. There's a warning to the church in First Timothy 5, 19 and 20. There's a warning to the body. In verse 19, Paul writes this. He says, do not entertain, do not even entertain, do not consider an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. You know, in Matthew, Jesus describes how we're to bring in, you know, when we've got a problem with a brother in Christ, we're supposed to go to him privately, we're supposed to, there's a process in which we're supposed to deal with that matter, but with elders or church leaders, Paul says here, first of all, we're not supposed to entertain accusations against the leaders unless there's two, and probably more likely to be three witnesses. It's not uncommon for someone to be in a leadership position and to have someone that's disgruntled with them. And Paul's saying, be careful. Don't just take every accusation that comes against that leader, but there should be other witnesses. Not to say <coughs> that the leader is above accusation. That's not what Paul's saying at all. But just be careful in how you entertain those actions or accusations. Because Paul says it's so serious that when there is an accusation against an elder and it's found to be something that needs to be dealt with, in verse 20 he says, speaking of elders, he says, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly. You know, a lot of times there's problems that can be dealt with privately, but when the elder has sin that needs to be dealt with, Paul says that sin needs to be dealt with publicly because he has a public position. And so that's part of the reason why it shouldn't be taken lightly. First of all, it shouldn't be taken lightly. There must be more than one witness. Number two, if there is a problem that needs to be dealt with, you're going to deal with the public because it affects the whole body of Christ. I want to tell you, Two parts about that. First of all, many times there's been accusations that have been made against church leaders with only one person making the accusation. It's not biblical. And we shouldn't, it should not to say that it shouldn't be followed up on, but it's not biblical. Number two, oftentimes when there's true sin in the leadership's life that needs to be dealt with, it's covered up. And many churches are dealing with those scandals right now where men have been in absolute terrible sin bringing reproach to the name of Christ, and the church leadership within that church helps cover it up. Instead of doing exactly what Paul writes here, is that bring it to the whole church, bring it, make it public, make it known, because <coughs> we're supposed to make an example 
out of that and cause fear to the other church leaders to not follow those practices. So we need to do both, not make accusations lightly, and then when there's legitimate sin that needs to be dealt with, it should be done in an open forum, publicly known, and it's a travesty that churches have covered up sin of church leaders and allowed that sin to continue on because it's being covered up. The church itself ends up helping the person continue in the sin that they're trapped in. So what the last topic is the responsibility of the leaders or church eldership. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, Paul, speaking of gifts, he says, if your gift is leadership, he says, let that person govern diligently. Churches do need govern, government. As much as I like to operate fairly loosely with not a lot of rules, so to speak, within our church, we do need government or, we, or we'll have chaos. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. We need to have order. There needs to be some order, and so we can't have complete chaos. There needs to be government within the church. Turning to Acts chapter 20, one of my favorite passages on Paul's direction to the leaders in the church. <coughs> in Acts chapter 20, we see Paul is visiting the church of Ephesus. And Paul knows it's going to be his last time with the people at the church of Ephesus. He's meeting now privately with the leaders, the elders of the church, and he's leaving them with his final instructions. In verses 28 through 31, we see what Paul says to them here. He gives them warning. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit have made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I'm going to just draw a few things out from this. Paul says first to the elders of the church, keep watch over yourselves. You know, the elders of the church are just as subject, if not more so, to falling into the trap of sin as the rest of the body. And they must keep watch over themselves first. Be careful to protect themselves spiritually. Second of all, he says after that, he says, keep watch over yourselves and then all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So first of all, keep watch over yourself, keep watch over the flock, and oh, by the way, the flock was given to you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given this as a gift from the Holy Spirit that you've been given this responsibilities. So be shepherds of the church of God. And not only that, Paul reminds the elders that Jesus Christ created the church. He bought the church with the blood of Jesus Christ. He gives them a warning in verse 29 that after I leave, there will be men who will rise up from amongst your own midst. Not outsiders coming in and attacking the church, but people from within the church itself that are in danger, <coughs> that will rise up and they will teach things that aren't true. And they will try to draw men after themselves by distorting the truth. It's so important as in a church leadership role to know what the truth is, to be able to defend and protect the truth so that you can protect the flock. Finally, Paul says this in verse 31, be on your guard. We must never let down our guard because why? Satan doesn't rest. Satan doesn't rest. He's going 24-7. And we must, re it's, it's so easy to become lackadaisical sometimes and get lazy in effect. But we must keep up our guard. Paul says that he prayed for them night and day for three years with tears. Turning back to... Um, 
Let's turn back to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Again, looking at the topic of responsibilities. Yes. Oh, thank you. This might help. You never know. I've heard she's a nurse. Mm, that does taste good. Thank you, Tanya. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of the responsibilities of elders, he says this, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So again, under the subheading of responsibilities, the elder must, first of all, hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Well, what's the trustworthy message? It's the true gospel. It's the truth of the word of God. You're not qualified to be an elder if you cannot hang on firmly to the truth, the gospel that Jesus Christ and Paul taught. And once you've held on to that firmly, you must teach it, encouraging others with sound doctrine. Many times today, churches don't want to spend any time on doctrine. Doctrine is simply teaching, and it's teaching the truth. And we must encourage one another with sound doctrine. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by sound doctrine. I'm encouraged by it, because when I know the true promises the true things that God's word tells me, it encourages me. It lifts up my spirit, and so I endeavor to do that in preaching that we encourage with sound doctrine, sound teaching. And lastly, responsibility of the elder is to refute those who oppose it. Boy, and you know, there might be the temptation to say, well, boy, don't be so harsh on people. When you go read the book of Galatians and Paul's confronting false teaching, boy, I'm telling you, he wasn't exactly tiptoeing around it on the edges. He goes after it. Why? Because false teaching is so dangerous. We cannot just idly stand by and accept it. We must deal with it right now. And so I, I want to be very straight up with you. as If I think something's false, I'm going to confront you on it. Now, likewise, if you think I'm stepping on a line and I'm false on something, I want you to step on my toes. Because the last thing I want to do is ever speak or teach something that's not true according to God's word. What a travesty. What a travesty. And I spoke about that a few weeks ago. That's why we open up our service at the end of the service. Because it would be an absolute travesty for me to preach a message and to have preached something that was false. And to not give the body an opportunity to correct that falsehood. I'm not worried about my pride. I'm worried about the truth of Jesus Christ's gospel. If my pride cannot be in first place, if my pride becomes in first place, or anybody else's pride is in first place, We've put our emphasis on the wrong thing. And so that's one of the primary responsibilities of eldership is being able to teach sound doctrine through encouragement and protecting what's false. Back to Hebrews 13. We're just getting close to wrapping it up now. Hebrews 13, Paul, um, the writer here, in verse 7 and verse 17, again, in verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So I would say to you that the responsibility of the elders is, first of all, speaking the word of God to you, and also a responsibility of elder is to live a godly life. 
It's to live a godly life so that the body might follow after and imitate that godly life. I would say to you as fathers within your homes, that is also true. I think that's one of the primary reasons why children are a test of whether or not you can be qualified to serve as leader within the home because so many times within the home, it's do as I say, not as I do. But children and likewise church body members will imitate and follow after true godly lives. And children can't be fooled. You know, you cannot fool your kids. You can't do it because they can see right through you. By the time they're teenagers, if you have not been a real sincere person, they'll know it. They'll know it. And they won't, they won't allow themselves to be fooled by it. And so they begin to resent, they'll begin to resent that. Do as I say, not as I do. And it happens to be true in the church too. And it's so important for church leaders to live lives that can be imitated by the body of Christ that are faithful lives. And down to verse 17. I must say to the leaders within the church that we'll be called into account. We must live that way, understand that, that we'll be called into account. And do not take church leadership. James warns those who become, who desire to be teachers, that to remind them and James that, that they will be just judged more severely. I believe that to be true because scripture says it. You'll be called into account and many, many men have served within church leadership roles, neglecting to understand that God will hold them in account for what they've done, whether good or bad. Lastly, I want to look back at 1 Peter chapter 5 again. Similar. And as you look at look at these various passages on this topic, what you see here is just continual similarities. It's just amazing to me how the word of God fits so closely, so well together. I just want to look lastly at these responsibilities that Peter lays out, starting in verse 2. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. So there again, he's reminding them to be shepherds, to be um, serving, not to be, you know, Jesus Christ uh, said that those that want to be first must be last, and the first, the first will be last, and the last will be first. But that, it's amazing when you when you serve in the kingdom of God, everything is turned upside down according to the world's pattern, the world's standard. But that you're called to leadership within the family of God, within the church, and when you're called to leadership, that isn't a domineering dictatorial type position it's a position of servanthood and that's what we see here is this picture of being the shepherd one who serves not because you must but because you are willing you have to have a willing heart not be resentful of it as God wants you to be continuing on not greedy for money so definitely elders should not be grieving greedy or serving for money there of course is a tragedy that we see played out so many times within churches today that many men are simply doing it because it's a way that they've discovered they can become wealthy. And that brings great condemnation onto themselves. If you read in 1 Peter where he speaks of false teachers and how they're doing it for money, that's a tragedy. And, I, and most of you know that, and I'll say, I'll say it again. It's one of the reasons why I serve without pay. Now, now Paul makes it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that pastors and elders can be paid for their work. 
and I don't think that's immoral. But I also think that Paul set a very good example. He said that I supported myself. Not that I couldn't have demanded support, but I did it so I wouldn't be a burden to you. And I think that's a great example. So if at all possible, I think one should serve that way so that there will never be a question of whether or not they're serving for money, it's a job, or are they serving because they're serving the Lord. And so I think if at all possible, a person should try to serve not taking money from the body. They should be eager to serve, not, again, as he says, lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. But la- and then lastly, uh, Peter reminds the leaders that when the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. <coughs> I think many pastors miss that. And speaking of in a financial reward, I can tell you that the rewards of Christ, I don't know exactly what they are, but they will far outweigh any paycheck. They won't, they won't, the paycheck will never measure up, will never measure up to the rewards that Jesus Christ has for those who serve. So how do we conclude this message? Well, first of all, these are just some thoughts that I had. You know, church government, church and determination to have church elders when we started this church and the way that we structured the leadership was very important to us. We did not start this church, and as we're going through these messages on foundational principles, We thought of these things before we started this church and how we wanted to establish principles for what we would operate. Of course, we looked to the Word of God for direction, but just having observed what's going on in the world, within the church world, so to speak, I've noticed these things I just want to point out, is that unqualified leaders leads to a weak and misled church. Oftentimes, degrees, are, and I mean school degrees, seminaries and so forth, are given greater priority within choosing church leadership than actual biblical qualifications. It's really sad. I mean, a lot of churches are just floundering because, yeah, they might have leaders that have the right pieces of paper on the wall, but they're not qualified according to God's word, and then they can't understand why their church is absolutely floundering. But when you choose to ignore God's word, whether that's in your own life or in whether how you function as a church, there will be consequences. And the consequences are is that you'll be weak and misled often. Non-biblical governance within the church leads to a weak church. And I think that there's, we usually see two extremes. We either see an overbearing pastor or a weak pastor. And I mean by overbearing, one who's domineering, acts like the church is his own personal little business, his own personal piggy bank. I think we've seen churches even in this, re- in this area that we probably know of where the pastor acts as if the church is his his company, it's, it's, you know, how he's, he's built, and it's all about him. And that's an overbearing pastor, not one who's serving, but one who's being overbearing, lording it over the people and taking advantage of the people. And then the flip side of that is, is that we see weak pastors, weak pastors that have no authority because the church doesn't expect his authority, doesn't give him any authority, and he simply is a hireling that is ineffectual because he isn't given the proper um, authority within the church to speak the truth about God's word. God's methods versus the world's methods. You know, we can either choose to be spirit-directed or we can be man-directed. Unfortunately, more times than not, the churches today choose to be man-directed versus being directed by the spirit and being directed by the word of God. We need to be not tempted to follow after the world's methods. So many churches simply operate as businesses I see it. I'm a businessman, and I'm in the business world five days a week. 
And I can tell you that most churches are structured and operate a lot like a business. They have a marketing plan, they have a CEO, they have a board of directors, and they have financial plans and budgets and building plans. And it's all similar to, I could go to business meetings and I'd talk to a business owner about how they're going to build and grow their business and it wouldn't be any different than if I sat in their church board meeting. That's why I refuse whenever we meet and have a, a meeting as a church. I won't call it a business meeting because we're not a business. We're the body of Jesus Christ. And we're to be directed by his word on how we must function. And when, whenever we go off of the path and separate ourselves from that and we use man-made methods, then guess what? We're weakening ourselves and we're making the message of the gospel ineffectual. The leadership in the church must be like a herdsman. We must feed the sheep, lead the sheep, tend to the sheep, protecting and guiding, nurturing and caring for. One of my favorite passages of all time is in Scripture is John chapter 21, which is the encounter between Jesus Christ and Peter after Jesus Christ was resurrected. And what? Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me? Which is absolutely a heartbreaking question because, of course, Jesus had been denied by Peter three times. Three times he comes to Peter in that in front of all the rest of the disciples. This was not private. It was in front of everybody. Do you love me, Peter? Well, you know I love you, Lord. And Jesus' response each time was, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Because Jesus loves the sheep. And when you're a leader, you're to feed the sheep. Most of you know that I'm a farmer at heart. And I think that I, I like being a farmer and I like to care for animals. There's so many similarities between being the shepherd and being a farmer because, you know, the farmer, the good shepherd, he gives his life for the animals. You know, when it's raining and it's muddy out there and the cow has a calf in the mud, guess where the farmer is? He's not in his warm bed. He's out there in the mud and the muck and the blood and the guts asking himself why he's out here. <laughs> but he's out there because that baby calf needs him. And he's getting that calf warm and protected. The shepherd is to, but you know what? When I call my cows or I call the animals, guess what? They know my voice and they come because they know I take care of them and I protect them and I feed them. And that's the kind of shepherd that God wants the leaders to be within the church because we're supposed to be like the good shepherd. We're supposed to feed the sheep. The sheep are to follow after godly leadership, confirming the teaching and life of the leadership by the word of God. I want to add one last statement for you as the sheep. The sheep must know the word of God. The sheep must know the word of God. So many sheep are so lazy, sitting back and thinking, well, he'll take care of it. He's my pastor. I'll just trust what he has to say. But if the sheep don't know the word of God, then they're going to be mis they, they run the risk of being misled by a, a bad shepherd or a shepherd who's gotten out of line. You've got to know the word of God. How many times have you talked to someone and said, well, my pastor says, my pastor says. I long to hear someone say, well, the word of God says. The word of God says, 
So we both have a responsibility. But I, you need to know the word of God so when I get out of line, which will happen from time to time, because I can tell you I'm very fallible. And as I pr prepare for this message and give this message, I got a lot of work ahead of me. I got responsibilities. I got things in my life that could be dealt with, should be dealt with, need to be dealt with, and get focused on what is a priority. So as we're in this together, we're all the body of Christ. And next week we're going to preach on the body of Christ and how the body of Christ is to function. And that's a great burden on my heart because I can tell you that one of the reasons why churches are so weak and so ineffectual is because the body of Christ is that they, the churches act as if the body of Christ is summed up in one man standing up in front of the church on Sunday morning. That's not the body of Christ. That's not how things are to function. And when we leave it to that, we won't have much... Uh, much reaping. So I'm going to ask Bill to come up and lead communion, and I think my voice has finally had it. So thank you very much for putting up with me this morning. <laughs>